0: Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you do not have a Bible, you are certainly welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. And you're also welcome to take that Bible home, to read it. If you've never read the Bible before, maybe start in the book of Mark. It's a pretty short book, just start there and consider the claims of Jesus. Jesus. This morning's sermon is really going to be on two verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, but we're going to read all the way down to verse 12 for the sake of context. So, here as God's word is read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct, Towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Jim Baker, oh, excuse me, before I get started, this is God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and all sufficient word. Amen? Jim Baker. Have you heard of him? Do you remember Jim Baker? He was one of the most famous televangelists of the 1980s. You might be more familiar with his pink-haired wife, Tammy Faye Baker. In 1987, Jim Baker's secretary accused the televangelist of doing things that are not appropriate to talk about in public. Baker eventually resigned from the ministry, and soon after he resigned, he was charged with accounting fraud, and he was sentenced to 45 years in prison. Jimmy Swaggart was another famous televangelist of the 1980s. His ministry collapsed in 1988 after it was revealed that he was cheating on his wife with ladies of the night. Televangelists, of course, are not the only ministers who shipwreck their ministry. Consider the example of one pastor, Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was the founding pastor of the famous Seattle-based megachurch Mars Hill. In 2014, Driscoll was fired for a decade-long expanse of spiritual and emotional abuse of the leaders of his church and the members of the church, as well as out-and-out plagiarism in many of the books that he had published. Or consider Pastor James McDonald. James McDonald was the founding pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago, Illinois. And under McDonald's leadership, the church grew to 13,000 members in over seven locations. McDonald had massive ministry platforms. He hosted pastors' conferences. He wrote books. He had his own radio program. In 2019, James McDonald was fired for a number of offenses, including at least entertaining a murder-for-hire plot against his son-in-law, misappropriating funds from the church into the millions of dollars, and several other grievous offenses that need not be enumerated here. Now, the list of Christian leaders who have fallen from grace and who have shipwrecked their ministry, it's a mile long. And it doesn't discriminate. Fallen pastors and leaders in the church, they come from all different kinds of backgrounds and tribes and cliques, different theological persuasions. I've chosen two people from my own camp, the reform camp, to talk about. But they come in Calvinist circles and Arminian circles. They come come from charismatic churches and cessationist churches. They come from low church denominations and high church denominations. Leaders that fail, and their ministry come from flaming liberal denominations, and they come from staunchly conservative local Baptist churches. They are men, and they are women. They are young, and they are old. They are black, and white, and yellow, and every other shade of melanin in between. So what are we to make of leaders like these with ministries that have done so much damage to the glory of Christ and the good of his people? If you remember at the beginning of last week's service, as I introduced Pastor Tommy Lee, our guest preacher, I talked about his character. And I wanted to talk about his character because I said that so many churches focus on the wrong things when they think about who should be their leaders. They ask, who has the most leadership acumen? You know, they look for the guy with the it factor. They look for the leader who seems to have the perfect polish instead of looking for the things that God tells us we should look for, like character, godly character that is the result of God's Spirit working in our lives. Friends, I think that's the heart of the issue. So what are we looking for in a leader? In our previous sermon from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 through 10, we saw Paul, he was rejoicing that the Thessalonians had uh, obviously, seen the manifestation of the Spirit's power in their lives. But he was also rejoicing that that same Spirit's power was manifest in his ministry, as well as the ministry of Silas and Timothy with him. And we said that we're going to put a pin in verse 5. Do you remember that? Because we said we would come back and talk about it more later. Well, that's what we're doing this morning. But let's, let's refresh ourselves and just go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says... Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So he's saying, Listen, I'm, we came in power, and I don't have to prove that to you. You know, you observed us, you saw. Well, in this morning's text, Paul is picking that theme back up, and he's going to. Uh, elaborate on what they witnessed when he was there with them in Thessalonica. So you see that same phrase in in verse five where he says, for you know what kind of men. Now go back to chapter two, verse one. He says, for you yourselves know. So he's picking right back up where he left off about what the Thessalonians know to be true about their ministry. And as he talks about his ministry, you'll notice when he discusses how God was very obviously and powerfully present in his ministry, he doesn't talk about signs and wonders. He doesn't talk about drawing large crowds. He doesn't talk about personal gifts. He talks about issues of character. If you want to know how Paul knows that God was with him, it was because he lived out the fruits of the Spirit in their midst. So as I think about these fallen ministers and the legion of other men and women who have shipwrecked their faith and wreaked havoc on the church through their broken ministries. I want you to know that I am less concerned for the church out there, you know, what's sometimes called like big Eva evangelicalism. I'm not saying that I'm not concerned about other churches, but I'm just saying I'm less concerned about those churches out there, and I am more concerned with this church right here. As your pastor, I'm not going to have to give an account for Every sideways word spoken by every Christian that exists in the United States of America and beyond. I'm not going to have to give an account for every person who gets put in a ministry position who should not be put in that ministry position. But I will have to give an account for the leaders that are appointed in the life of this church. And so will you. We're a congregational church. That means that. You, we believe that the Bible says that you have the final authority in who you have as leaders over you, be that elders or deacons, they can be staff elders or non-staff, the missionaries that we send out. We have the final authority as a congregation over that matter, which means if you have the authority, then you have to give an account. Now, I want to make sure that, the, that when you appoint leaders over you, that you have the right categories in place. I want to make sure that you don't just choose the marketing guru or the master orator or the organizational savant over the humble, lowly, and faithful leader who may not seem in any way powerful to the world's eyes, but who may be, in fact, full of the Spirit of God and all the power that comes with it. I want us to have eyes to see what true Spirit-empowered leadership is. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, and we're going to talk about that for several Sundays to come. I set out to preach this sermon. I was going to preach all 12 verses, 15-point sermon. I got 3,000 words into point one and said, oh, no. (laughs) So I've got one point for you in this morning's sermon, note-takers. The first mark of a spirit-empowered leader is that he must be bold. must be bold. Let me pray. Father, would you help me to be bold and to say what you have said this morning? Would you help our members to be as careful in their listening to your word as I have been careful in preparing it? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, if I was a, a freshman In college in like my first English literature class, uh, this would be the part of my paper where I would say something like, the Merriam-Webster definition of boldness is XYZ. Instead of giving you uh, the dictionary definition or trying to come up with my own definition of what boldness is, I would rather just kind of show you from God's word what boldness is. I would rather you kind of experience boldness rather than try to grasp it intellectually, at least at first. So turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 3. As you can see from the... Subheading there, this is the they that we're referring to as Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus. So, as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So here we have Peter and John preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This ends ends up with them standing before the Jerusalem council. They've been arrested. This is uh, seven weeks after the crucifixion of their master. Okay, Seven weeks after, and they're standing before the Jerusalem council. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here's what they have to say to the council. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must, we must be saved. Now that's, that's a heck of a thing to say to the people who just killed your master and Lord just seven weeks ago, but, but they know something that these Jerusalem leaders don't know. They've seen the risen Lord. but they're probably still afraid. They know that these men have the ability to take their lives. If not take their lives completely, then to make them suffer terribly. But they continue to preach in boldness. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, there was something that the apostles Peter and John knew They had been with Jesus, not just in his earthly ministry, but since he had resurrected from the grave. And that empowered them to be bold for the sake of the gospel, to stand firm and to continue to preach the truth, even under the threat of significant suffering. Now, the apostles were eventually released, but they were also ordered to stop preaching the gospel. right? And this was under threat of punishment. Look at verse 18. It says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, the exact nature of the punishment is not stated here in the text, but I'm sure that it didn't take the apostles long to think about what Jesus had been through, how he was beaten, how he was put to shame, how he was hung on a cross. This threat from the Jerusalem council is very real. And Peter and John are very likely afraid for their lives. So what do they do? Well, look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. Are we afraid? Yes. We can't help it. And they don't stop there. As soon as they get released, they go and they find another group of believers. They join up with them, and they pray, and they ask God's help so that they don't compromise the gospel, so that they continue to preach the gospel with all boldness. Go down to verse 31. And when they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness spirit empowered boldness this account of boldness in the ministry of Peter and John this is the same kind of boldness that Paul says the Thessalonians saw when he was there with them so now let's go back let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul says, listen, we have we had already suffered. We had already endured significant persecution. And he, he references back his time in Philippi. Now, if you remember from my introductory sermon, Philippi was where Paul was at right before he went to Thessalonica. You remember he went from like here to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens, uh, and then finally to Corinth. Well, Philippi was where he was right before Thessalonica, and he suffered significantly there. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and, and it's probably a bit of an understatement, that Paul was on edge as he made his way into the city of Thessalonica to continue to preach the gospel in light of what he had gone through in Philippi. If you want to know what Paul went through in Philippi, the good news is that Luke tells us, I'll just read it for you from Acts chapter 16. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, I imagine that if Acts chapter 16 came up in your daily Bible reading plan, that you would probably just read this passage and not really spend much time thinking about what Luke is saying here. You probably wouldn't try to put yourself in Paul's shoes, try to imagine what it's like to be taken a hold of by a crowd of angry, hateful people drug out into the middle of the streets, stripped naked, ashamed, exposed, only then to be beaten, flogged, spit upon, cursed, just like their master. When we read words like he was stripped and beaten with rods, that he was severely flogged and thrown into prison, we are, we are out of depth with the pain and suffering that is captured in these words. We, we just pass over them quickly and lightly, but we shouldn't. What Paul went through was a horrific and traumatic experience. And it would have been enough to convince most of us in this room, myself included, to just sit down and shut up. Maybe if you think you would be strong enough to endure, you can come and talk to me after the service I have been weak enough and given in to fear of man enough to know that I don't think I could do this on my own. When POWs are captured by enemy forces, uh, they are under strict orders according to the military code of conduct to only give out three pieces of information. Name, rank, and serial number. This is how you're trained. All sailors and Airmen and soldiers and Marines, and they do their best to adhere to this rule, especially under extreme duress, which is just a polite term for torture. One POW at the infamous Hanoi Prison in Vietnam, they called it the Hanoi Hilton in order to maintain a sense of humor, he was ordered to write out a false profession of war crimes that he had not committed, and he refused. He gave his name, his rank, and his serial number. Well, this is what followed. I got to serve as a stress reliever for about 20 guards. Each took his turn beating me to a pulp. They pounded me for six or eight hours. By then, I was getting pretty shaky. Then they got serious. I was introduced to a bowl of water, some filthy rags, and a steel rod. The guards stuffed a rag in my mouth with a rod, and then after putting another rag over my face, they slowly poured the water on until all I was breathing was water vapor. I could feel my lungs going tight with fluid and felt like I was drowning. I thrashed in panic as darkness took over. When my senses returned, I discovered that I had been blindfolded and trussed into a pretzel position. Thick leg iron shackled my ankles, My wrists were tied behind me, and a rope bound my elbows just above the joints. The guards tightened the bindings by putting their feet against my arms and pulling the ropes until they couldn't pull any harder. Then they tied my wrists to my ankles and jammed a 10-foot pole between my back and elbows. After a few hours, the leg irons began to press heavily on my shins and feet like a vice. The ropes strangled my flesh, causing searing pain and making my arms go numb until they slowly turned black. After going on and on about what he experienced there, he finally concludes with this. I told the guards that I would write the confession. And I did. This is not a weak-willed man who did this. This soldier was strong. He was resolute. He fought the good fight against his captors. But he was not unbreakable. And neither are we. What Paul went through in Philippi was a violent, traumatic experience, and it's something that most of us would not easily recover from. And this event was obviously still fresh in Paul's mind as he entered into Thessalonica. It was probably as fresh in his mind as the scars were fresh on his body. And yet, as he entered the city, he did not shirk his calling. He did what he always does he went right to the synagogue. And said, open your Bibles. I've got to tell you about the Messiah. He preached the gospel knowing full well that another mob might seize him, stone him, flog him, or just outright kill him. And you know from our introductory sermon that that's exactly what they tried to do, and the believers got him out of there. Now, let me be clear. The Apostle Paul was a great man. A great man but he was still a man nonetheless and if you are tempted to lionize Paul and to put him on a pedestal as a sort of seal team six Christian who's doing things that only super elite Christians can do well then friend I think Paul himself would want you to know that you are mistaken I think you can see even a little bit of a hint of that in the language that he uses in this verse go back and look at verse 2 again He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. You see, Paul is very careful to ground his boldness in God and his power and his grace. This boldness for the Apostle Paul is not a personality trait. Now, some people may be naturally built... One way or another, you know, they, ha- they may be naturally more built to have more or less fear. You watch a documentary on uh, Alex Honnold, the guy who did the free solo of, of El Capitan, the big mountain out in Yosemite, and they scan his brain and they see certain parts of his brain don't really light up as much in the, in the parts that are responsible for processing fear. You know, some of us may have more or less fear naturally. Some of us may be constituted in such a way as to be more assertive or less assertive, more reckless or less... But that's not what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the boldness that he had in Thessalonica. Paul is talking about something that is born of God's Spirit, working through God's people for the glory of God's name. It's what happens when he, when he God, the Spirit, empowers us to fear God more than we fear man. This boldness is what happens when we have conviction that can endure in the midst of suffering because we have come to know Jesus. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Biblical boldness is what happens when we rely on God and His strengthening hand, not on our own flesh. Consider the Apostle Peter, right? He preached in Acts 2, he stands up before everyone. I mean, this dude, this is like his moment in the sun, and he preaches one of the most, one of the boldest sermons that have ever been preached in church history. And then in Acts 4, which we just read, He's got John by his side. He stands up and does the same thing, preaches the gospel in all boldness. But do you think Peter was naturally constituted in that way? You remember Peter in the courtyard, right? He wasn't too bold then, was he? And you may be thinking, well, Sean, that was before the resurrection. Yeah, well, you remember Peter was also very timid and afraid of the Judaizers. Paul tells us in Galatians that he had to confront Peter for his fear of man. He didn't seem too bold then either. Boldness is not necessarily an innate characteristic. It's something that God has to empower in us as his followers. I mean, consider Jesus. He was fully God, yes, amen? But he was fully man. And just prior to going to the cross, he sat anxious, praying in the garden, crying out to his father, saying, Strengthen me. If it's possible, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And then he moved to the cross. Do not get it twisted. No one is all bold all the the time, not even the Apostle Paul. You remember that the Apostle, as he's writing the Ephesian Christians, one of his prayer requests, one of his few prayer requests, is that they would pray that he would be bold for the sake of the gospel as the gospel would require. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 6. Pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see, friends, the gospel demands boldness. And Paul was afraid that when the moment came that he would have to meet that demand, he would not be able to. Paul was a man like you and like me. And he needed God's help. You know, most people who have spent uh, a large portion of their lives competing, they'll tell you that no matter how many times you step out on the stage, or you take the track, or you hit the field, that the nerves just don't go away. They just don't go away before competition. Donald Cowboy Cerrone is a UFC fighter who's one of the craziest and bravest men maybe that's ever lived. He's had 55 professional fights where he goes into a cage. They lock it behind him so no escape. And then another guy who's highly trained at hurting people goes and then tries to take his head off. Okay, In case you're wondering, I think this is sinful and wrong. I think it's human cockfighting. Nevertheless, this is what he does. He's had 55 of these fights professionally. Before his 55th fight, he had this to say, about his experience of anxiety. He says, Every single time I'm just scared and nervous. My legs are heavy, my arms are heavy. It's the worst night of my life. I just go and throw up. I throw up every time, I still do it to this day. You make the walk, you're smiling, but inside you're scared. I'm scared. Do you think it ever got any easier? the apostle Paul as he faced down the mobs coming to seize him by the time that Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians this is what he has gone through for the sake of the gospel countless beatings often near death five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned do you think that Paul ever stopped being afraid of that As he faced down these crowds with malice in their eyes and stones in their hands and hatred in their hearts. seems unlikely. Paul was a man like us and he feared that he would fail his master by failing to declare the gospel. So he prayed and said, God, strengthen me. And then he asked other people to pray for him and that that God would strengthen him. This is what a spirit-empowered leader looks like. Bold in the face of suffering. Now, before I go, I just want to give you some rapid fire application here, okay? Brothers and sisters, pray for boldness in your own life, right? Recognize that if the Apostle Paul needed someone to pray for him, that he would be bold for the sake of the gospel, that uh, you could pray for yourself, and you can also ask other people in the church to pray for you. Maybe you've got a situation with a coworker or a family member, and like you're trying to find how to say the thing that you've been trying to say, you've been trying to muster up the courage to be bold and potentially ruin that relationship or make things really awkward, and you just, you're having a hard time, well, pray and ask God to give you the words of boldness. And then tell someone else in the church who loves you, and that will absolutely pray for you. And don't say, if you can remember, and maybe if you have time this week, say, hey, here's what I'm going through. Can you pray for me right now? Pray for your leaders that they would be bold. I remember, is Blaine in here? Blaine's doing gospel kids ministry this morning, huh? I remember one time I told Blaine that I really really struggle with insecurity, and he couldn't believe it. He said, you always seem so composed. Well, it's a good act. I wrestle with being bold all the time. It's very difficult for me to say the things that need to be said on a pretty regular basis. I know that Grant can say the same thing, Michael, when he was an elder. Your leaders need help being bold for the sake of the gospel. Even the ones that seem like they don't need help, they do. Pray for boldness for all those who have a particularly difficult task in sharing the gospel. So think about a missionary in a hard country, right? Pray for them. Think about a seminary president who, you know, maybe he's tempted to compromise some small part of the gospel so that he can keep his government funding and his school going. Pray for him. Think about denominational leaders who have forces pressing in on them from every side, trying to keep so many different factions pleased. Pray for them that they would be bold. Pray for people who aren't involved in ecclesiastical things like this, but who still have a difficult time sharing the gospel, like public school teachers. Think about how often those who are Christians and teach in public schools want to share the gospel with kids in their classes, and their parents, and they are just so nervous about finding the right way to do that so that they don't get fired. Think about Christian employers who want to try to use their authority, their platform, their position to share the gospel with those under their authority, but they know that they have to be very careful lest they get sued. We can just keep going down the list, but pray for men and women like these. Now, before moving on, uh, I think we need to clarify a common misconception about boldness. First of all, uh, in the, one of the scriptures that Amber read earlier from the book of Acts, we saw that there's a scenario in which uh, there was a brother who stood up and he was preaching boldly for Jesus, but a sister had to pull him aside and correct him. And say, actually, that's not really the exact right message. Now, the boldness there wasn't the issue. The issue is that he was not informed in his boldness. So brothers and sisters, young brothers and sisters, be bold. Be super bold for Jesus. But make sure that your boldness is grounded in a right understanding of the gospel and all the implications thereof. Make sure that you have a mature faith to accompany your boldness or else you might end up making a fool of yourself and and doing some damage along the way. Now, another misconception. I know that some of you are listening to this sermon about boldness, and you're probably thinking, Sean, this could never be me. You have no idea how timid I am. I am like a leaf shaking in the wind. You're like one of the people that if I look at you while I'm preaching, you immediately look away, right? Right? Eye contact, oh no. I'm talking about the people like if you are at the cash register and the cashier gives you wrong change and shorts you a 20, instead of saying, oh, you shorted me a 20, you'll just lose $20 so that you don't have to say anything about it. you just walk out of the store. I know that there are a number of us who are just naturally timid, right? We feel like we're constantly on the verge of a panic attack, especially as we think about being bold. I don't know, Sean. I just don't know. Well, what if you misunderstand what boldness is? When we think about boldness, we, think, we tend to think about someone with their chin held high. And it's a very nice chin. It's a robust, thick chin, like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, you know? And that big chin is pointing high up in the sky, chest poking out. The person who's being bold is speaking with perfect diction and clarity and volume. And they say and do what needs to be said and done, and they do it in a powerful way. Well, friends, that's not necessarily what boldness is. It may look like that. Boldness may be like that, but more often than not, boldness comes with sweaty palms, a racing heartbeat, breathless speech. Boldness is when we say what needs to be said and we do what needs to be done, even when it's really scary, even when it's really tough, even when every fiber of our being, every cell in our body is crying out, don't do this, you don't have to do this, and then you do it anyways. You know, uh, we think about boldness, one of the people that kind of quickly pops to our mind is Martin Luther, right? Right? the tidal wave of a human being who was kind of like the hero of the Reformation. We think about him boldly nailing 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Well, actually, it wasn't that bold. That was actually pretty normal in those days. Anytime anybody wanted to debate about anything, they would just go nail it to the door. Nobody probably even saw Martin Luther do that and thought twice about it. But what about his famous standoff with Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, right? That's where they say, have you written these things, and have you said these things, and have you published these things and preached these things? And if so, do you now rescind them? Do you take it all back and commit yourself to the holy Catholic Church? And we have this vision in our minds, especially because of maybe some of the movies we've seen of Martin Luther, where he stands up and he says here I stand, I can do no other, right? Chin held high, chest poked out, perfect diction, clarity, volume in a speech. I mean, it's really powerful, really powerful. Except that's not at all what happened. The first time that the emperor and all of Martin Luther's accusers asked him if he would take back everything that he said, He was so afraid, he was so nervous that he said that he needed extra time to think about it so they gave him another day and he went back and he paced in his room praying all night, asking God for the courage to do what was right. And then as he came in the next day and responded to his accusers, those who were there and who witnessed this say that he seemed very timid, very meek. They say that when he responded with the words, here I stand, I can do no other, he was so quiet almost no one in the room could hear him. But he was bold even if he looked weak because he stood on the truth of God's word in the face of persecution and suffering. Brothers and sisters of Sixth Avenue as you think about the kind of men that you want to nominate to be elders in the life of this church full time elders like me lay elders like Grant and other men in the future. Boldness is an attribute that you must consider. But do not confuse biblical boldness with alpha male characteristics. Some of the toughest looking guys that I know are quick to tuck tail and run, and some of the strongest men I know are diminutive in their stature. And they are seemingly weak in their disposition, and they're introverted to boot. I can think about two men in this congregation, who I won't name because, you know, I don't want to put them on the spot, but I can think about two men in this congregation, just right off the top of my head, who have been bold towards me, and they do not seem like very bold men according to the way the world thinks about boldness. When I think about appointing an elder in this church, I'm not concerned with men who look bold or who act bold, I'm concerned with men who are actually bold as God defines boldness. Now, we must be bold in the face of suffering, that's true. But I'm going to add another nuance here. We have to be balanced. We have to be balanced. L- listen, listen to the, what, what Paul says in, uh, actually let me just skip that. No, let me not skip that. Sorry. Hang tight with me. Pastors don't only have to be bold in their opposition to the world and the suffering that they face there, but they also have to be bold in the life of the church. right? Paul says in Romans 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me. Paul says, listen, you're not against me. I'm not against you. We're on the same team. You're not trying to persecute me. Nevertheless, I do have to be bold with you about some stuff. As a teacher of God's word, this makes perfect sense to me. When I think about boldness, I don't only think about people who are not Christians that I'm like trying to evangelize. I'm also thinking about members in the church who may not like what I have to say on Sunday. I'm preparing my sermon. I think that this is what God says. God says. I know that that does not line up with what this person or that person in the church believes about what God has said. Nevertheless, I have to say it. I'm bound by conscience. To go against conscience is not good or right. So I have to stand before you and say it. In in teaching, Wednesday night Bible studies, you have to be bold. In counseling, when you're sitting down with someone who is just lost in their sin, who has been taken captive, By some piece of deceitfulness, and you know that you have to say something difficult to them. You know that they're not going to want to hear it. You know that they might say that they're leaving the church and they're not coming back after you say what you have to say to them. But you have to say it, you have to be bold. Pastors are very often afraid, and they need God's help to be bold. They know that when they say this, it could lead to a church split, or it could lead to a very important person leaving the church, or a very important family taking off. It could lead to conflict amongst leaders. It could lead to them being misinterpreted by those outside of the body who don't know the full context. They still have to say it. Every pastor who teaches on what the Bible has to say about a host of different issues in 2020 has got to be bold whether we're talking about hell or homosexuality or anything that's even slightly political in nature. We have got to be bold. But we must not only be bold. Leaders have to be balanced. Paul was writing to Philemon, a man who owned a slave and who had become a Christian. And he had a recently converted slave, Onesimus. Paul is sending this slave Back to Philemon, and this is what he says. He's, he's, telling, he's telling him, You need to release Onesimus. You need to release the slave. It's the right thing to do, it's the Christian thing to do. But this, listen to the way he says it. He says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul says, Look, I'm an apostle, baby. You know what I'm saying? Did Jesus appear to you on the road to Damascus? Did he specifically call and commission you in a very special way? Oh, I didn't think so. Okay, I'm the man, capital A apostle. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to operate in that way. I don't want to have to boldly... You know the gospel. I want to appeal to you. I want you to want to do the right thing. But you don't even have to leave the book of 1 Thessalonians to see this same kind of balance in Paul's ministry. Look at verse 7. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Whatever this boldness was that Paul put on display in Thessalonica, there was some aspect of it, some characteristic of it, that looked like a nursing mother. So if you have a concept of boldness, that looks more like you know Mel Gibson and Braveheart out there covered in blood and blue paint and that's the only thing that boldness looks like and you don't have any room for the nursing mother aspect of boldness and you've misunderstood boldness you don't have a val- a balanced vision of boldness this is why it's so important to take our cues from God's word when we think about these things not from the world and unfortunately a lot of churches have been really harmed by pastors who are rightly concerned with you know, a serious lack of strong men in the church. They're like, hey, where are the strong men? And I'm, I'm like, brother, I hear you and I agree with you. But their response to that is to propagate a vision of boldness that's not really what we find in the scriptures. According to their vision, there is no room for the nursing mother. They forget that Jesus was not only a lion, but he was also a lamb so we must be on guard. A spirit-empowered leader must be bold, but he must not be bold all the time. There are certain uh, popular preachers out there who, man, I love and respect, and a couple of their sermons have really changed my life. If I were to tell you who they are and name the sermon, you'd probably be like, oh, yeah, 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 that sermon changed me too. And that's great. But some of these preachers, I'm... I don't know that I would want them to be my pastor because they're all boldness all the time. It's like someone turned the boldness knob all the way up to 1,000 and then broke it off. You know, They only have one mode, profit in the wilderness. Well, that's just, if you've ever tried to have someone be your pastor like that, it's, it's not very easy. A spirit-empowered leader has to have wisdom. His boldness has to be infused with wisdom to lead him and guide him. You know, he can't just have the on-off switch for boldness. He has to have a dimmer knob, and he has to know. He has to let wisdom dictate when you turn it up and when you turn it down. Little old lady going through chemo, boldness meter, way down. False teacher in the church, boldness meter, way up. All the young guys in the church, listen. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Teenagers, any young guys who aspire to any kind of ministry in the church, you are in the high risk category when it comes to being bold in all of the wrong ways, right? Young guys are like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, whipping out the sword, cutting dudes' ears off, you know, like, I got this. And Jesus is like, no. Put it, your sword away. You're bold, but you are bold in all the wrong ways. Your boldness is good, but if you are not careful, you are going to hurt somebody. I say that from a position of weakness and repentance. I have been the young, bold guy. Again, if anybody wonders, Spencer Miller probably has some stories that he can share with you. I still struggle with it. I still don't have the calibration exactly right. But I have seen the bad fruit that comes from Uh, immature, aggressive, petty boldness that's mistaken for godliness. I've seen that. And I've also seen what has happened in my own life in ministry as I've I've calibrated my boldness according to God's word and and learned wisdom and, and, and how to exercise it. And I've seen so much good fruit grow out of that helpful calibration. So young guys, be careful. If you love God's people, Be careful. If you want to have a long, fruitful ministry that doesn't just implode the day after tomorrow, be careful. And stop reading discernment blogs and watching discernment YouTube videos. Guys, I'm serious. There are some people who, they make their whole little world, their whole little ministry career by making YouTube videos attacking other Christians. And they are so bold on the internet. I've met some of these guys up close in person. They're not so bold then when you look them in the whites of their eyes. No leader is going to strike the boldness balance perfectly all the time. Sometimes leaders will be timid when they should be more outspoken. Sometimes they'll be harsh when they should be more gentle. But we must be bold. Friends, we cannot have weak-willed, mealy-mouthed preacher's teachers, missionaries, and leaders in God's church. We cannot have that. We must have men and women of conviction, of strength, of endurance. We must have leaders who don't shrivel under pressure like a piece of cellophane under the heat of a blow dryer. And The only way we can see who has that kind of boldness is as we live our lives together. Only then will we know who has this kind of spirit-empowered boldness. We need to know who has a track record of saying and doing what needs to be done, even when it's really hard. And of course, there's no greater example of this than Jesus himself. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Now this verse doesn't specifically use the word bold, but it's the same concept in play. The author of Hebrews is addressing Jesus right before he goes and suffers the wrath of God on the cross. And he says this, looking to Jesus, that's us, we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We know from the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus struggled to make it to the cross. But he went. He went boldly. Well, what moved him? What got him there? Well, it was a vision of the joy that was set before him. And so he went. Jesus is our exemplar in this way. We look to him to know what boldness looks like. So, friends, do you have that same vision? If you are clinging to anything else to empower you to be bold, you're gonna you're not gonna be bold. And if you are, you're gonna be bold in all the wrong ways. If you're gonna be bold because you think other people in the church will see your boldness and pat you on the back, you're being bold in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. If you're being bold because it's part of your identity and you feel like you have to live up to this high standard, and Pastor Sean just preached it, so now I feel like I have to do it if I wanna be a good Christian, that's not gonna work. You're gonna fail. But if you understand that God has his eternal joy waiting for you in heaven, if you understand that you've been rescued and redeemed from the power of sin and death, from the consequences of hell, friends, what is there to be afraid of? How can you not be bold as you stare down your coworkers, your enemies, your whoever it is that mocks you, that hates you, that despises you for being a Christian? Dom, can you bring me that uh, order of service right there, brother? In this morning's, we didn't plan this, in this morning's uh, catechism question from the New City Catechism, I noticed it as I was getting ready for the service this morning. It says, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? Answer, it reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the joy that Jesus was talking about, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. This is what awaits us, brothers and sisters. How can we not be bold? If you're here and you're a visitor this morning and you don't know Jesus, you should know that this is not what awaits you. Our God is a very gracious God. And he is good at giving gifts. And he has thrown wide open the doors of his celestial city. And he is calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins, to trust in him, and to come in and dine with him and to enjoy him forever. But the only way that you can do that is if you actually turn from your sin. You know, I remember when I wasn't a Christian, I remember how bold I was for my sin and for the world. I was so bold. But I was afraid of God. I said he didn't exist, but I knew he existed. We all know. There's no such thing as an atheist. Only the fool says in his heart that there is no God. I was so afraid of God that I tried to suppress the truth of his existence in my unrighteousness. And I tried to overcompensate by being bold in my sin. But friends, one day, all that boldness will come to an end. Because nobody can be bold when they look face to face, eye to eye, with the God of the universe. When you see him in his holiness and his righteousness, when you see the fullness of his glory and splendor, you will fall on your face. And you will be timid and lowly but if you assume the posture of lowliness here and now, well, friends, then you can enter into his presence with boldness and confidence, not because of you, but because it's only through that lowliness can we have a relationship with his son, his perfectly righteous son. And if we're united with his son, then we can come into his presence because the father is glad to receive his son. He joyfully receives his son. He invites his son into his presence. He says, come to me, son, And if we are united with Christ, then we can do the same thing. We no longer have to fear coming before our God. Jesus is our example of boldness. And here's the thing about boldness and those who who are our exemplars in boldness. Boldness begets boldness. The disciples observed Jesus and his boldness and that empowered them to be bold. Did they do it perfectly? No. No. But you saw what they said about Peter and John in Acts four, right? There was something about their boldness that made it obvious that they had been with Jesus. I mean, have you ever just been around someone who's smarter than you, but just by being around them, you feel like you're a little bit smarter? You start to use words in different ways and construct sentences you're like, "Wow, where did that come from?" You ever been around somebody who's confident, even when you're not confident, and they make you feel confident? You know what I'm talking about? That's a mark of a good leader. That's what happened with the disciples. They had been with the resurrected Lord, and they had fed off of his boldness, and they became bold. And then Paul, as he's talking to the Philippian church, he holds himself up as an example. He says, you follow me as I follow Christ. And we see here with Silas and Timothy that Paul's boldness empowered them to be bold. And who knows what happened with those who were the disciples of Timothy and Silas. Paul describes this ph- phenomenon in Philippians 1.14, talking about him being in prison and his suffering in chains. He says this, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They were afraid. They saw Paul go to prison for the sake of the gospel. They saw him be bold even in the midst of suffering, and that empowered them to be bold. Kind of counterintuitive, right? You would think, oh, they got our guy. We're going to go hide out in the corner. No, it's the exact opposite. Boldness begets boldness. Parents, be bold for the sake of Jesus so that your kids can see you and follow in your footsteps. The days are coming, and I really do hope that we are all preparing our children to be bold in the face of opposition as we follow Jesus. If you're not preparing them for that, if you're not demonstrating that, if you're not leading from the front in that, your kids are going to get crushed. It may happen in middle school. It may happen in high school. It may happen the first day of their college experience. I don't know when it's going to be, but they will get crushed. But they don't have to be. Pray for them, love them, teach them God's word, and live out the boldness of the gospel in front of them. Bosses, show others what it's like to be bold for the sake of the gospel in your workplace. You've got a little bit of authority. Use it and find ways and means and avenues of being bold for the sake of the gospel. I've told you before about my lawyer friend who is such a good lawyer and he is so good at his job that he has a significant position of authority. And because he has that position of authority, he talks very freely about Jesus all the time. And I asked him, I said, hey man, uh, aren't you afraid of getting in trouble for that? And he goes, what? No, I'm too good at my job. They'll never fire me. I've got carte blanche. I'll talk about Jesus all day. You know, strive to be that kind of boss. If you're not the boss, if you're a fellow co-worker, you know, I remember what it was like in the army. It was like me and a bunch of other pagans. (laughs) And whenever I would come across another Christian, I would be so excited But sometimes I would be disappointed because they'd be like, dude, I've been around you for like a year and I've never even heard you say the name of Jesus. Why is that? Well, maybe if I would have been more bold in my faith, I would have empowered them to be bold in their faith. Who knows? Boldness begets boldness. And brothers and sisters, we must have bold leaders in the life of our church. But we need God's help in order to do that. So let me close out this sermon with one more prayer along those lines and let's see what God does in the future. Amen. Father, we we praise you for the men and women that you have gathered here today, for the children. We pray that as you fed us this morning, that we will internalize, that we will take all these nutrients that we've gotten from your word, that we will go out and live bold lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. We pray that the leaders of this church would lead from the front, demonstrating what it looks like to be bold for the sake of your son. We pray that all the members of this church would show themselves to be distinct from the world, that they would not give in to the fear of man, fear of the flesh, fear of this world, that they would fear you and you only, and they would have a vision for eternity that empowers them to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together. No list of sins I have not.